13. If you're using a pew Bible, that is page 1037. I'm so thankful for the sovereignty of God. Over a year ago, I had heard from Andrew Gonerman, the missionary we had last week, uh, asking if he could come. And he, I remember him specifically asking if he could be here that first Sunday in April. And I mean, that far out, I didn't have anything on the calendar. Sure, come on over. I did not know that I would be preaching this passage and would benefit from the time having spent the week prior to him coming, studying this, meditating on it, wrestling with parts of it that I really wasn't expecting to be the way they were. Isn't that funny how the Bible does that? You think you know a passage of Scripture, and then you actually start looking into it like, whoo boy, did not see that coming. Because of God's good plan, I did not have to cram all the sermon prep of today's sermon while being at our state conference. The conference was this week up at camp. I got to sit under solid preaching Sunday as Andrew was here, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, and I needed that. Not sure if that amen was because I'm so terrible, but I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I needed I need to sit under preaching. I don't get to do that very often. The last session on Thursday, uh, our speaker was Dr. Craig Keck uh, from Faith Baptist Bible College, probably a new name to most of us. He was new to me. Uh, he started off his, his sermon with uh, a reminder to the preachers in the room that I didn't quite understand what he meant or why he said it when he said it. By the end, I got it. He reminded us that our authority comes not from the number of success stories we have, but our authority comes from the Word of God. My authority to speak the truth to you this morning is not because I'm perfect at what I'm about to tell you. I'm growing in it myself. I can see how I've grown over decades, over the last few years, over the last few months, even the last few weeks, I'm growing. My authority is not based on my own success, however. My authority comes from the Word of God. So let's look at the Word of God. Luke 13, we'll read just the first five verses. There were some present at that very time who told him, who told Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Let's pray. Father, speak to us from your word. Convince us of your truth. Give us the faith to obey your truth. 
and to live for you. So, Father, guide me as I speak. Guide us as we respond in Jesus' name. Amen. How often do we ask why? If we're talking about my three-year-old, it's an awful lot. We want to know why, don't we? Sometimes that why is a why of curiosity. Why are the leaves that are green on the trees in the fall turn brown and red and yellow? Why does that happen? It's a why of curiosity. Other times we ask why in frustration. Like maybe I left the garage door open on a windy day and those brown and red and yellow leaves all blew into my garage and I opened the door and see what happened and go, why did I leave the garage door open? It's not really curiosity, it's just frustration. But sometimes why comes in a form of lament, of sorrow and pain. Why does there have to be war in Eastern Europe today? Why do we have members of our church suffering in pain due to injury or surgery or accident? A why of lament. In today's passage, Jesus had been teaching a large crowd. So if you back up into chapter 12, you'll see him talking to the masses. Uh, but has now drawn his attention to a smaller, closer group of people. And someone raises this question about these Galileans whom Pilate had killed. Now our text is in two parts today. It's Jesus' conversation that I just read, uh, and then a parable that, that immediately follows. So we'll get to that in a moment. Um, the events of verses 1 through 4 are events that actually happened. Tragedy really struck and people really died. The events based, or the events in verses 6 and following that I didn't read yet, are a story. They're based in reality. These are things that could happen. But that's not the point. The point isn't whether or not it really happened. It's that it's an understandable story. It's a parable. It's an understandable story that we can relate in the physical realm to point us to a spiritual truth. So that's where we're heading. Let's get into the text. Uh, we see what the text says here in verse 1 uh, that, uh, of what happened, the facts, the events uh, of the who, the what, the where, the when, and the how. But what we don't have in these verses is why. Disaster strikes. It happens in our world all the time. A mass shooting can happen, has happened recently. And we very quickly know the details, don't we? But it's the why that never fully gets answered, right? And isn't that the, the question that we kind of linger on, the question that we really press into is, what made this individual or this group of people go off and kill all these people. And we don't like that. We want to know why. 
Because maybe if we understand the why, we can prevent it from happening next time. Maybe. In our story today, in our uh, account of what happened, we have a when. The when is implied. This was a recent event that people had heard about. It was uh, common knowledge. Uh, So they ask him, uh, what about these people? We have the who. We have Pilate as the one mentioned by name. Pilate, a Roman governor over the area of Judah or Judea. The nation of Israel was part of the Roman Empire and not by choice. They were conquered by Rome. And Pilate was over this area. And of course, he would not actually be the one doing the killing, but he would have ordered it. The other who would be the Galileans, the people who were sacrificing and were murdered. Galilee was a district in the area. Think of Pilate as being over a state. Think of Galilee as a county. So these are people within his territory. Uh, These Galileans had, as, as so poetically written, had their blood mingled with sacrifices. The where is answered by the what. The Galileans were worshiping God. Where do you worship God and offer sacrifice? Well, only in Jerusalem. So we know where it happened. It happened in the temple at Jerusalem. The how is not described in detail, but we get the idea that this was a violent death. Though the people asking Jesus about the situation don't say, why did this happen? It's implied. We're all thinking it. And he knew. So he answers. He says, verse 2, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? Sometimes we presume that someone's early demise that someone's early death or even just trouble in their life means that they have lived a sinful life and that God is just done with them. Does God sometimes kill individuals for their sin? Yes, he does. Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, the church was new and broke. And people were being generous. They would take properties that they had, they'd sell it, and they would bring all of the proceeds to the apostles in order to to get this church funded. There were those who were generous, but there were also those who weren't generous but wanted to appear so. And that was Ananias and Sapphira. And you know what happened to them. They laid a portion of the money at the apostles' feet, which would have been fine. They could have done that. But they claimed that it was the entire amount that they'd sold their profit for, and God struck them dead. Ananias first, Sapphira separately, for the same reason, just struck them dead right on the spot. Because they lied. Another example we talked about a little bit last week in our uh, time around the Lord's table 
There was irreverent participation in the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul says that some have even died because they didn't take the Lord's table seriously. Yes, God may well shorten someone's life because of the actions they are taking. But Jesus warns the people to not presume that someone who dies early was somehow more sinful than you. No, they were not worse sinners than you are, and that's a relief, isn't it? The thing is, when it comes to man's presumption, we generally do it like this. We overestimate our own selves, and we underestimate others. We overestimate our skill in academics, academics or sports or in our jobs, and we underestimate the ability of others. We think of ourselves as being better than, than someone else. In the context, we're talking about someone's righteousness, and it stands true here, too, that, that presumption that we generally have that I'm not as bad as this other person. We typically, typically think of ourselves better than we really are, and we see sin more prevalently in other people than we do ourselves. This is unhelpful. Very unhelpful. It's easy to assume others' sin all the while ignoring our own. But Jesus tells them, no, they were not worse than others. But he did not stop there. Verse 3, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Do you presume that those people who were murdered while sacrificing to God, that they were worse than other people? No, they weren't worse. But you, repent, or you also will die. There are a couple heavy words here in verse 3, and it's repeated in verse 5. You notice that. Verse 3 and 5 are the same. That word repent, the other word is perish. Repent, the underlying meaning here is to have a change of action due to a change of mind. A change of action due to a change of mind. So if this morning you went to your closet and picked out an outfit to wear, and you tried it on, and then you changed your mind, no, I don't want to wear this, and you go and then put on different clothes, that is an example of repentance. Not biblical repentance, but that's an example of repentance. However, if you went to your closet, tried on something, and decided, no, I don't want to wear this, but because you couldn't be bothered to go and change your clothes, you continued to wear it anyway, that is not repentance. You changed your mind, but you didn't change your outfit. When Jesus tells the people, when Jesus tells us that we must repent, he is speaking of a specific change of mind and an attached change of action. 
How often have you changed your mind about your sin where you, you get convicted about it, you realize that it's in your life and you want to turn from it, but then the next day you find yourself doing the same thing over again. You may confess it, you may, which is just telling God that you know that, that that's sin. But you haven't repented if you haven't turned away from the sin. So it's a change of mind that leads to a change of action. Putting off that sin as best we can. Jesus tells them, repent or perish. Most of us, our first introduction to the word perish was found in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. It doesn't take a lot of effort to understand that the word perish means death. What else could be the opposite of eternal life in John 3.16 but death? The Greek dialect that the New Testament was written in has a variety of words that can be used for death. Some are more euphemistic in nature, such as sleep, when in, in reality they have died. The word perish, however, is a particularly harsh word. It's not like we would say someone passes away to try and ease the sting of that word. Perish is a harsh word. It means to ruin or to destroy. So people have asked Jesus about these poor people who were murdered while they were worshiping. The, the government came in and murdered them while they were offering a sacrifice to God. They were doing something good and right and holy, and Pilate had them killed. And Jesus says, they were no worse than you, or, or flip it around the other way, you are not better than they and unless you repent, you too will perish. Perhaps chills went down their spine as they realized that they too might have their lives cut short. I thought of this passage uh, a few weeks ago. I was, uh, took a vacation to go on the band and choir trip. A handful of you were there as well. Do you remember Monday? We went to Graceland. Graceland is the mansion of Elvis. First of all, it's not as big as I thought it would be. That was weird. The guided tour takes us through the property, but as it takes us through the property, it also takes us through the life of Elvis. And if you're going to go through the life of Elvis, where does it end? With his death. In fact, uh, his gravestone is right there on the property. Now, to a bunch of teenagers, some 42-year-old man dying doesn't necessarily re register to them as a life cut short. But really, that is a life cut short, isn't it? Later that same day, same town, we toured the Civil Rights Museum just a few miles away. It's at the motel where Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. That tour ended right where he was murdered. One day, two tours, both ending with a life cut short. 
Both of these lives started in oppression. Elvis was poor. He was dirt poor. He's actually poorer than that because dirt's expensive. As a teenager, he had a job. He had to save up $4. It's about $50 today. And it took him months to save up that $4 in order to, to cut a record for his mom. Now, some of you teenagers have jobs. It might take a little bit to come up with 50 bucks, but not really that long. He was poor. A year or so later, he was discovered, became very famous, as we all know. So famous was he that even 45 years after his death, he's still known as the king of rock and roll. Martin Luther King Jr. did not grow up poor, but he also grew up oppressed. Just because of his skin color. He followed in his father's footsteps, becoming a preacher. His success came through organizing peaceful protests. Other people hadn't been doing that. Peaceful protests because of the moral blight of racism. And he too, like Elvis, was very famous at the time of his death. Two men, two very different origin stories, two very high levels of success and fame. Two men who on their respective last days had no idea that they would not make it to evening. Two men who had much more to give. They each had events scheduled that very day. Elvis was going to be at a concert that night, and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. had another event he was going to. Lives abruptly cut short. Was Martin Luther King Jr. or Elvis Presley more evil than anyone else in their day? Now, they're very public figures. We know about their infidelities. And many of us would immediately say yes. <laughs> what about in God's eyes? Jesus says, you repent or your life may be cut short as well. So Jesus gives us perspective of two incidents where people woke up, went about their day like any other, assuming that they had many more days and weeks and months and years to come. The first instance, the crowd gives to him, and it seems particularly heinous for a couple reasons. It was intentional, it was at the order of Pilate, and it was during worship, a righteous event. seems particularly heinous. The second instance in verse 4 has a different background, but it has the same ending. Jesus reminds them of another event that had happened recently and nearby. Or what about those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them? Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? It's the same general geographical area, but rather than being bloodshed at the hands of another, this is what we would call a natural disaster. No intent. It's just a bad thing that happens. Do those things happen? A tower fell. 18 people died. Jesus asked the same question. Do you think they were worse than others? And he gives the same warning in verse 5. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. All of you. It didn't matter 
who was following Jesus more closely and knew him a little bit better. It didn't matter those who had just showed up that day and it was the first time they heard him speak. All. So there are differences in these two events given to us, verse 1 and verse 4. But we have one specific similarity. Lives can be unexpectedly cut short. So today we have understood here man's presumption. We presume that we're not as bad as someone else and so we don't have to worry about something bad happening to someone else because that doesn't really impact me, especially when it's you know, this, this third-party news event rather than a family member or something like that. But what we often fail to see is God's perspective of guilt. We have our pres- presumptions. God has his perspective. By the way, his perspective is right. We as mankind often presume to know the why of what happened to people. Well, that, uh, Hurricane Katrina hits New Orleans because it's an evil city. Lots of people said that. What does scripture say? All must repent. Sometimes we presume to understand the why of someone's perceived success or longevity. It must be that that they're a good person. How many ministries do we know of that failed because even though they looked like they were being very successful because there were people in that ministry who were not repentant so Jesus continues uh, in your bible there may be it may look like a new paragraph it may have another heading it probably does at verse 6, but this is really inextricably connected to verses 1 through 5, which is part of the surprise I got into studying this passage. So let's read this parable, beginning in verse 6. And Jesus told this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find None. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Parables have a point. They have a main point, and the main point of a parable is what we need to look at because Uh, oftentimes we can get distracted with little details. Uh, It's a futile exercise to try and find the significance of the trench that's dug around the tree. It is unhelpful to try and figure out what tools did he use and how deep was it, or, or which animal produced the fertilizer. Those are all unhelpful. They're not part of the main point. Even the vine dresser himself is not the main point. The point is simple, and it is clear. There is a tree It is old enough to be producing fruit, and it is not producing fruit. 
the owner will be finished with this tree and have it destroyed if it does not soon produce fruit. That's not hard for us to understand, is it? The tree represents people, specifically people who are following God. That's who asked the question in verse 1, isn't it? People who are following Jesus. People who might otherwise think that their lives are in good standing with God. The fruit that this tree is to produce is the production of repentance in that person's life. A fig tree that is three years old is old enough to produce figs. Would the owner expect figs the first year? Not if he understands fruit trees. But he does know that by now, he should have had some figs. We don't necessarily have a specific time frame that we can apply to ourselves, but the fruit of repentance is one of those early fruits in a Christian's life. And it should be evident early on. Life is short. We are not guaranteed a tomorrow. We're not guaranteed this afternoon yet. I haven't gone that long. Our big idea this morning is life is short and shorter when you harbor sin. Life is short, and it is shorter when you harbor sin. In other words, God wants you to see your sin like it's a malignant tumor. Malignant, mal, that's the bad one. It's the one that's growing. That's the one that's left unchecked will kill you. He wants you to see your sin like a malignant tumor. The first step in a medical diagnosis is the same spiritually. It's to recognize that there's a problem. A growing and spreading tumor is most dangerous when it's either unknown or ignored because we don't realize the harm that's being done. Once you know the problem, the second step is to get rid of it. It's the same spiritually as it is medically. Get rid of the tumor. Recognize your sin. Remove it. That's repentance. The failure to repent is so serious that it may literally kill you. I did not see that coming when I first started looking at this passage. But you can't get through this passage and come to any other conclusion, can you? Repentance, that recognition of sin that still remains in our lives. Recognizing it and purging it. Because if we don't do it, it'll shorten our lives. When it comes to our physical health, we get it. We may have gotten away with the Coke and Twinkies diet when we were young. Some of you are laughing because it's the diet you're still on. But at some point, we recognize, you know, if I want to have even a healthy kind of twilight years, I need to, you know, put some more vegetables in. Stay away from so much sugar. We get it. 
We don't want to live, live life miserable because we didn't take care of ourselves or even have our lives shortened because of our diet. So what happens is when we start eating a better diet regularly, that odd weekend when we go back to Coke and Twinkies, we feel miserable, don't we? Because we're not used to that much sugar. We're like, oh man, did I really eat like that all the time? Same is true with sin. We get used to our sin. So used to it, in fact, that we sin without realizing it. We gossip. We, God's own people, speak evil of others. We gossip. We don't even give it a second thought. We speak evil of others. And just as wrong, we listen to others speak evil of others. Oftentimes we do both. You know, as Iowans, we would at least think twice before driving on a snowy road with bald tires. We'd either get new tires for our car or we'd drive the other car that has better tires on it or maybe we're just not going out today because it's too snowy. Why do we do this? Because we know that we risk expense of wrecking our car. We know we risk injury. We know that we risk death by driving on slick roads with the wrong tires. We're ions. We're better than that. We know better. Doesn't mean we always don't do it, but we at least know better. But when it comes to words, that can be just as deadly. Don't give it a second thought. We're cautious when we drive, but not when we speak. And actually, it's worse than that. It's not that we're just not cautious. We delight in gossip. We enjoy sharing and hearing. And God says it's killing us. We gossip. We lust. Most people don't end up talking to their pastor about lust until it's way too late. Until they're addicted to porn. They just can't stop. And it's a long, difficult road to untangle and retrain those thought processes. And if you're sitting here entangled in porn, get help. Pastor Dan and I will help you. But for those of us not entangled in porn, well, we're not stuck there. But lust doesn't start with a porn addiction or with marital infidelity. It starts with a linger. Just a lingering look. A lingering thought. And lust has taken root in our hearts. You can't always help what you see, but you can help what you look at. And you can definitely help what you look for. We can't always help what we see. 
advertisements, whether it's on TV, on the computer, even out in the world, that show a little more flesh than what we need to see. We can't always help that we see it. But that moment from seeing to lingering on it is where we switch from oops to sin. Most of us are desensitized to just how lustful we are. And we need to repent. Our lives depend on it. Not everyone lusts visually. Maybe your lust is that conversation with a coworker over lunch. And it seems innocent enough at first, but a tiny little candle of romance is started and it will burn down your home. Because you lingered. When you should have fled. We gossip and we lust. And so much more. Twice in today's passage, Jesus told his followers, not just the world at large, he told his followers, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Your unconfessed, unrepented sin can shorten your life. Again, this is not where I thought today's passage was going. I've heard and used this passage, at least the first few verses, sort of a wake-up call when disasters happen. And it is that. It's not wrong to use that passage that way. But the emphasis that Jesus is making is actually more alarming. The emphasis of the text becomes clear with this parable that our own destruction is at hand should we continue to live an unrepentant life. This is a passage that became very heavy that I didn't see coming, that you probably didn't see coming when you came here today. But even in such a grim passage, there is grace to be found. There is. Did you see it? Did you recognize it when I read it? There's grace to be found we are right now living in that grace. The owner, in verses 8 and 9, has allowed for another year for that tree to produce fruit. It hasn't yet, and it should have been. But he has time. We don't know how much time we have. But the fact that we're here today means we have grace today to recognize our sin turn from it right now we are given the opportunity to repent right now we are afforded the chance to change our mind and to change our actions beyond that we are right now given time to help someone else who is ignoring sin in their lives that they would repent lest God should shorten their life to counsel someone who is rebelling against authorities in their life To warn someone who is uninterested in worshiping God or reading his word. We're given the opportunity to alert someone, the busybodies and the slanderers, to the deadly reality of their sin. We have that time of grace to recognize sin in ourselves and to help our brothers and sisters do the same.
We must not presume to know why God assigns a short or a long lifetime to any individual. That's why Jesus told them twice, no, they weren't worse than others. It's not for us to figure out, oh, that, that person died way too young. He must have been terribly sinful. That's not us. That's in God's sovereignty, and we'll leave that to God. But we must all realize that God granting us even one more day is a gracious gift designed to draw us closer to him. So how will you respond? Will you allow your eyes to be glazed over? To not see your sin? And by not seeing it, not deal with it? Or will you humbly kneel before your Savior in humble repentance? Will you engage with others to encourage one another, to exhort one another, to confess to one another? These are all commands given in the, given in the New Testament that we, the church, are to do for one another. Will you engage with one another in this process of holiness, of being like God has positioned us? He's positioned us as holy in Christ, and now we're to live it out. Will you help someone else live it out? I've preached this as a challenge to us individually, but we are the church. We are not alone. We are to help each other to be disciples we're growing. Life is short. It's shorter when we harbor sin. Let's each one turn back to Christ.